0: He was from Nazareth. He is the Christ of the Old Testament, the Anointed One, the Messiah. Most of those prophecies came under the Mosaic dispensation. You remember from our Bible class there are three dispensations? Patriarchal dispensation, Mosaic dispensation, Christian dispensation under which we live. Most of the prophecies came from that middle dispensation, which goes from Exodus through Malachi. Malachi. But there are three great prophecies in the patriarchal dispensation, which will be the three points of our sermon together this morning. The first one is in Genesis, the third chapter. The first gospel in the Bible is in Genesis 3. Now, it's a veiled prophecy. I dare say that those who heard God speak this prophecy, Adam, Eve, and the devil did not know what God meant by what he said. Even those Jewish scholars who later read the book of Genesis probably pondered this passage, scratched their heads, wondered what it meant. But we do not have to wonder today because we have the New Testament. Now the, the time of patriarchy is sometimes called the starlight dispensation. Not very much light, s- stars emit, Mosaic dispensation is called the Moonlight Dispensation. More revelation from God, but still not really bright. And then the New Testament is the Sunlight Dispensation. We have the full revelation of God. The whole Bible is available to us. So we can look back to the Old Testament and we have verses in the New Testament that explain what Old Testament verses mean. So we're going to have one of those in Genesis 3. Now, if you were not in our Bible class this morning, maybe you were in a different class, let me just give you a quick summation of Genesis 3 and we're going to focus just on one verse in this chapter. You have three ideas in this chapter. You have temptation, verses 1 through 6 condemnation verses 7 through the end of the chapter and then you have salvation verse 15 we go back into that section and pull out the one ray of light on a very dark day because Adam and Eve have sinned, they've plunged humanity over the falls of iniquity they have changed the world forever but on that day, the darkest day in human history we find that God had a flashlight of promise to give to humanity. It's not all dark. I have a plan. I'm not caught off guard. So that gets us to Genesis 3, verse 15, first gospel in the Bible, the first great prophecy of the patriarchal dispensation. And what is occurring here is that God has asked Adam, how does he, uh, where is he? And how does he know he's naked? And then Adam does what no other husband ever did in the history of the world. He blamed his wife, you know. (laughs) Eve, she she gave me the fruit and I did eat. And maybe he blamed his God, the woman that thou gavest me. And then he asked Eve, and Eve practiced Flip, Flip Wilson theology. Some of you are old enough to remember the devil made me do it. So you have Eve pointing to the devil. The serpent beguiled me. And then God turned to the devil. He did not even ask him a question. He just began to meet out judgment in reverse order against the devil, against the woman, against the man. But in this section where he meets out judgment against the devil, he makes a statement about all of humanity, that, that all of humanity will be blessed by a defeat of the devil. So let's see that in verse 15... And I, that's God, will put enmity. That's a word we don't use much, but it's in the same word family as enemy, the thing that is against us. I will put ill will between thee and the woman, that is between the devil and the woman. Now we might ask the question, you know any women that like snakes? And the answer to that, <laughs> probably no. And I don't know any, not many men that like snakes either, but there's more to it than just an, a surface interpretation of that. There's going to be enmity between the woman's seed, that is, her descendants, Cain, Abel, Seth, and all the others, all the way down to us. And that same tempter that tempted her has not been replaced. He has not ultimately been cast down yet. So all of her descendants also faced the same devil that she faced. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed who are the devil's seed well those are it refers to those who follow the devil's path those who live the way the devil wants them to live thy seed and her seed well, who who is that well that's not just the good people there's a specific individual that is in mind here no doubt adam and eve did not understand as i mentioned the devil did not understand at this point in my judgment but ultimately we know who it is because Galatians 3:16 says and to thy seed not seeds plural but to thy seed which is Christ and we really did not even need that verse to know who this refers to because it says <clears throat> her seed God makes humans with the male seed There has only been one person born in the history of the world who was made of her seed. You don't even get out of the first chapter in the New Testament before that person is identified. There is a virgin named Mary who has asked a special favor of God, Will you have a baby for me? And she said in Luke's account, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. There was a lot of... There was pain involved in that. There was inconvenience. There was shame. But she said, whatever it is that the Lord wants me to do, I'll do. I'll have a baby for you. And she does. And that baby did not result because she and her betrothed, um, Joseph, came together in the normal way to produce a baby. No, they did not know each other sexually until after the firstborn child was born. Jesus was born. Then they had other children. But Jesus was born of the virgin. 39 times in chapter 1 of Matthew it says, He begat, a father begat, 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 39 times. And then when it gets to Jesus, it says, Mary of whom Jesus was born. You see, the, beget, the begetting is the male part in the process. Of whom was born, that's the female part. Jesus was not born because He was begotten of a human male. He was, he was born because He was begotten of God. The only begotten of God. Now you go back to Genesis 3 and we know who the seed of woman is. Thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel now there's a hint in that pronoun the next last word in that verse his seed not its seed so there's a hint there he's talking about a specific individual now what is he talking about since we've determined that you have this battle between the devil and the seed of woman which is jesus so satan and jesus have a conflict what what does that refer to well, you could point to Matthew 4 and say they'll battle out in the wilderness, but that would not fit the overall context of salvation which is being talked about here. It fits better to go to Calvary and, and see the contest that occurred there because you have, on the one hand, Jesus, receiving, having received an infliction of a wound, His heel would be bruised. And the devil would receive a wound and his head would be crushed or would be bruised. Let's say today you leave the services and you go have lunch and you go home and you kick off your shoes. And you remember, I forgot to get the mail yesterday. Anybody still have a mailbox? Is that still a thing in Texas? You still have mailboxes? Okay. So you you don't put your shoes on and you say, I'll just go down and get the mail. So you walk down on the way back you step on a gravel and you limp around and you oh my bruised my my heel and you get you get into the house and and of course husband says, If you had told me to put on my shoes this would have never happened, but now I've got a bruised heel. And uh, you how long is that going to last? Two or three days. You know, maybe tomorrow you'll, you'll, oh boy, my foot's still sore. Probably by Wednesday night, you won't even remember it, right? Bruised heel, doesn't last too long. But let's say someone's on the way home today and has an auto accident has a head wound. They're going to rush you to the hospital. You may be in there for a number of days. It might even be life altering or life ending. A head wound is fatal. So, you go back into this text and you talk about a bruised heel. Jesus' heel was bruised. You say, I've studied the crucifixion. There's no way that was the equivalent of a heel bruise. I mean, they beat him, they nailed him, they put a crown of thorns on his head, they nearly killed him, and then they did kill him on the cross. I mean, that's not a heel. That's an awful beat. Yes, that's true. It's not talking about how bad it was, it's talking about the duration of it. How long did it last? Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Up from the grave he arose three days. That's the equivalent of the duration of a heel wound, right? But what happened to the devil when Jesus came out of that tomb, Matthew 28, 1 through 6? He received a head wound, a fatal wound. You know, there's no doubt about who's going to win this great contest between the devil and God. God already won, We know who won. You've read the book of Revelation. You know the end of the story, right? The devil is cast down into a lake that burns a fire and brimstone eternally. He's already defeated because Jesus came back alive. The only question is, who's going to be on the devil's side when the end comes? Will I be of the seed of woman? I'll be following him. Or will I be of the seed of the devil? Will I be following him? Now all those who are following the devil will end up with the devil in that lake. All of those who have been saved by the seed of woman will get to be with him in heaven. So that's what this chapter is talking about. It has the first ray of light, the first prophecy of patriarchal dispensation about Jesus. God had a plan, even when man sinned, that man could still be saved. That's talked about in Romans 3, 23 to 26, which says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we've done the same thing even Adam did. And then 24 to 26 talks about God's dilemma. I mean, you think about the nature of God. On the one hand, God is loving. On the other hand, God is just. So the love of God wanted man to be with him in heaven to be saved. The justice of God said, wait sin cannot enter into the holy the holy of holies so you had this contest this quarrel between the love of god and the justice of god and the wisdom of god stepped in and said what about an innocent man dying for humanity the love of god that's fine the justice of god that would satisfy the justice And so Jesus stepped forward, came to the earth, lived among us, tempted as we are, yet never sinned, died in our place, resurrected the third day, ascended back to heaven, sits by God's right hand, inviting all men to come to Him this morning. You see, that's what started in Genesis 3. But let's go to our second great prophecy, Genesis 12. There are four great men that are in the book of Genesis. There are 26 patriarchs between Adam and Moses. The seven greatest patriarchs are the ones that we know. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job. <laughs> you have these, uh, these great men of the, of the early period of hum, human history. And you might add, um, add Adam and Noah to Abraham, Isaac, the first two. So Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Job. Those are the seven great patriarchs. But here is the most famous patriarch. Abraham, covered in chapters 12 through 25 of Genesis. And, God, and Abraham lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. That's not identified here, but it is in Joshua 20 and Acts 7 too. So we know where he lived, and they have excavated this city. It was a large, large city, modern by many standards, had straight streets, running water in the houses. Some of the houses had 20 rooms. Does your house have 20 rooms? Mine doesn't. What we know about Abraham, seems like he might have had one of those houses. But God appears to him in Genesis 12. I don't know where this occurred. The Bible doesn't say I picture him out in the field somewhere. When God speaks to him. Now when you read the book of Genesis, it seems like God is speaking to patriarchs like every other week, right? But when you look at the book and you divide it by the years... It's only one appearance on average for every 400 years. This is just about 400 years after God's last interaction with man, with Noah. So it's not happening all the time. But here is one of these appearances. And so God says, I have a request or a command for you. And if you will do it, then I have a promise for you or promises for you. The command is in verse 1. The promises are in verses 2 and 3. 2 through 7, really. Alright, so Abraham comes in. I picture him coming back into the house and calling out to Sarah. Sarah! I'm back here. Guess what? What? We're moving! What? What? Yes, we're moving. God said move. Where are we going? I have no idea, but pack. We're moving. He went out not knowing whither he went, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 says. So they packed, went out. I don't know if they flipped the coin to go one way or the other, but they went one way and ultimately they ended up in Canaan. He never owned any land in Canaan, but God said the land where you're now walking, will one day belong to your descendants. I read somewhere that sometimes ship's captains have sealed orders, and they will go out from port, go out, and whenever you get to longitude, latitude, such and such, open these orders and you'll find out what. Well, that's what you have Abraham doing here. He goes out. Now, he's asked to leave his country. He's asked to leave his family. He's asked to leave his home. That's a lot to ask. And he is 75 years old. Not a lot of people move when they're 75 years old. His wife's 65 years old. Most of the time they're settled and they're just going to stay where they are, even though that was about midlife for them. But they moved. God said moved. They left a house, we assume, maybe one of those 20-room houses. Never lived in a house again. He dwelt in tents as a nomad. And he had opportunity to go back if he wanted, Hebrews 11 says, But he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He had in mind something better. He wanted to go to be with God. And so he just kept moving from place to place. Now let's read Genesis 12, 2 and 3. That's the whole, all that's background on getting to the promises. God does not ask us to do anything that he does not give us a promise or a blessing for. Think, for instance, at the end of this Sir, service today, we will offer the Lord's invitation. It's really open anytime time. I've had people and other preachers have who walk down the, during the middle of the service to be baptized, for instance. And we'll stop this service, and we will have a baptism. We'll go back and finish the lesson. If you, want, if you make that decision before, but it's a convenient time at the end of a lesson. Preachers offer the invitation. He that believeth and is baptized. So that's what God's asking us to do. Does God ask us to do it with no benefit, no blessing? No, the last part of the verse, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be down. So God's offering salvation to us on what terms belief? And baptism, Mark 16, 15 to 16. So what terms or what blessings did he offer on those terms to Abraham? Verse 2, and I will make of thee a great nation. Now that would have been a wonderful promise from Abraham's perspective if he had said, I will make of you a great family. Because how many children did Abraham, or at this time, Abram and Sarai have? You could count them all on one hand and you don't need any fingers. They had no children. So if God had said, I will make of you a great family, that would have been wonderful for them. We're going to have, we're going to have kids. That's not what God said. God said, I will make of you a great nation. That's a whole lot of families. Now, in order to have a nation, you have to have people, which he didn't have at this point. You have to have a law, and you have to have territory or land. Did you know that's developed historically through the Old Testament? The people starts right here, and uh, it takes 25 years for him to get the first one, right? Genesis 21, when he's 100 and Sarah's 90, they have their first baby boy. His name is Isaac. Laughter and they have their first baby together and that's the child of promise and then Isaac has Jacob and Jacob has 12 boys right that become the 12 tribes of Israel those are Abraham's what grand, great-grandchildren and then they go down into Egypt 70 people they come out 2 million plus people so now there's a nation of people what about a law well, that's Exodus 20. God writes with his finger on the tablets, gives it to Moses. Moses brings it down to the people. They have the Ten Commandments, and then that's added to with the prophets over the years. You have the law of Moses. But you have to have a land, you have to have territory somewhere for the nation to be. Well, that's the land of Canaan, where Abraham's feet tread. Later it's given Now, they did not inherit it like the other nations did after Ham, Shem, and Japheth got off the boat with their wives and they went to different areas. Well, it was some of Ham's descendants that were in Canaan. One of his sons settled there. His name was Canaan. But they became so wicked that God said, you can't have this land anymore. I'm taking it away from you and I'm giving it to Abraham's family. And so Joshua goes in conquers and that's where the children so now they have all three they have a nation but let's go back to genesis 12 that's not the reason we're reading this today i will make thee a great nation i will bless thee make thy name great thou shalt be a blessing hold that thought for a minute verse three and i will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and the last part says and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed what does that mean Well, Galatians 3 talks about the promises made to Abraham. If we had time, we'd go read that. But I'll summarize it by saying that that chapter tells us that this is referring to Abraham's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, who will bless all nations of the earth, potentially. And you don't even get out, again, out of the first chapter of the New Testament until you find the promise referred to here in Genesis 12 of to Abraham, the, the lineage of Jesus, that boring list of names, you know, Matthew 1, Luke 3. But in Matthew, he, it's a descending list. Starts with, guess who? Abraham. And goes all the way down to Joseph. It's the, the biologic, the, uh, the royal line or the, the legal line. The names are a little different in Luke. Guess why? That's the biological line. That's his mother's line. They're from the same tribe, and they match up once you get a certain point, but they're different at the end. Now, Jesus came into the world, a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, and he died for the sins not just of Jews, but for all humanity, including you and me. So the promise is that all families of the earth are blessed through Abraham's lineage. Second great promise of patriarchy. Third great promise is Genesis 49. So flip over. And this is in the time of uh, Judah, who is one of those great grandsons. And uh, Jacob is giving his children, his sons, what we would call, what the Old Testament calls a blessing, but it also has an element of prophecy in it. In other words, this is what you're going to get. This 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 is what God's going to give you, so there's the blessing. But this is going to happen in the future, so it's prophecy. And some of these are not very flattering. I mean, you, you read down through this, uh, like verse 4, Reuben was unstable as water. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brother instruments of cruelty in their habitations. I mean, these are, he, he doesn't... He doesn't pretty it up any, does he? It's just, this is your character, and this is what you're going to be rewarded. But when you get down to Judah, he compares him to a lion. And this lion has certain characteristics, and this is an interesting sermon by itself, but we'll just drop down to verse 10, because our time is almost up. The scepter, what's a scepter? That's the thing the king has in his hand, right? Right? It's a symbol of authority or royalty. The scepter shall not depart from which tribe? Judah. Now, that wasn't always the case. Uh, What place was. Well, I'm not going to go with all the history. Uh, Judah. Later on, if you look at the history of Israel, and I'll just summarize this really fast. You have, um, they become a nation in Joshua, and they're under what's called a theocracy, which means a God rule, God's ruling, there's no man. I mean You have Joshua who led them in, but it's a theocracy. But then you get to 1 Samuel, it's 430 years in the judges, you get to 1 Samuel 8, and the people said, make us a king like all the nations. And Samuel's really upset about that, and God says, go ahead, they asked for it, they're going to get it. And that changes. So they go from a theocracy to a monarchy. They have a king. And then after David, you Saul, David, Solomon, the first three kings, after Solomon dies, his son becomes king, and the kingdom splits. You have Israel in the north, ten tribes, Judah in, the south, Judah in the south, two tribes. Well, Israel never had a good king. They were carried in captivity. They never came back as a nation. Some of the individuals came back in the return, the other return, but not as a nation. And then Judah had some good kings, some bad kings, eventually carried into captivity for 70 years because of their idolatry and their sin. And then in the time of Daniel, Nehemiah, Esther, Ezra Nehemiah, Esther, Israel, during that time they came back home and rebuilt the city, rebuilt the temple, and Judah was restored as a nation. Now let's read this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That, that implies that Judah would be around fifteen hundred years later. Almost two thousand years. How many nations last even a thousand years? Not very many. The average length of a nation is two centuries. You know, we're at 250 years. That's a long time for, for a nation. There are a few exceptions. China's an exception. But here you have God telling Judah, at, before they're even a nation, that you're going to last until Shiloh comes. That, that, that We look back on it, that's 1,500, 2,000 years this nation would still be around. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until, that's an adverb of time, until Shiloh come. You know what Shiloh means? Shiloh means Peace. Isaiah nine six calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. Very good. And Jesus, before he went back to heaven, said, "My peace I leave with you, not as the world giveth, but as uh, John one, John 14, 1, 27, and Philippians four six and seven, peace that passes understanding." So here's the third great pro- prophecy of Jesus in the patriarchal age. You have salvation promised, Genesis 3. You have salvation promised through Abraham's descendant, Genesis 12. Then you have salvation promised through Judah. This is interesting, and I'll close after this. You know, the four key characters of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. But the lineage of Jesus doesn't go like that. The lineage of Jesus goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah then down through David, down through Joseph and Mary. We already mentioned that the Lord's invitation is always open, but the end of a sermon is a good time to respond to it. Well, this is the end of a sermon. And you may respond to the love and the grace of God today. You're not responding to a preacher. You're not responding to a church. You're responding to Jesus Christ, for He's the one who died for you. He's the one who wants to save you. He's the one who will welcome you one day into heaven. Now, I suppose most, most in here are already followers of Jesus. There's a date on the calendar somewhere where you were baptized into Christ. Your sins were washed away. You became a member of the church. But in an audience of this size and of this makeup, with the ages we have, it would not be the case that all have made that decision. Today would be a great day for a person who's been thinking about becoming Christian, who's been studying about Jesus, who understands the plan of salvation, to respond during this song, sit on one of these front pews and say, I want to be baptized for the remission of my sins. John or Jordan or someone would take your confession. The sweetest thing you'll ever say with with your lips, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You'd be immersed in water, sins washed away. Come out of the water, resurrected to a new life. All the bad things you ever did, said, thought, erased. The good things that you should have done, should have said, should have thought, but didn't, as if you did. That's forgiveness. There's not enough money in Bill Gates' pocket to buy that, but God's giving it away for free. If you haven't been a faithful Christian, you say, the devil got me. I I fell for one of his lies. I need to come home. But don't give the devil another day. Give your days to to God, starting with today. You can be forgiven of sin by repentance of sin, confession of sin, prayer about sin. God will forgive. James 5, 16. If that sounds good to you, you may respond during the singing of this song. Let us stand.